Well, good morning. Good morning to each and every one of you. So glad you're here. So glad that coming to church on a Sunday morning is, is part of your life, as I trust it is for most of you. And for those of you who are new, I hope it becomes part of your life, not because you need church, but it's just great to be with God's people and to worship. Uh, thanks to Steve and his team and the, the choir for leading us in, in a musical worship this morning. And, uh, and kudos to the sound crew who make it, all, uh, make it all work and make it all happen. Nobody thinks about the sound crew until something squawks, you know, <laughs> and everyone turns around, but they do a great job, and we appreciate that very much. Uh, for starters, if you would turn to uh, Luke chapter 9, <clears throat> if you're not too familiar with the Bible, it's about two-thirds of the way through, Matthew, Mark, Luke. John. So it's Luke chapter 9. We're going to sp spend a little bit of time there this morning. And when I talked to Pastor Calvin about the conference, we, we talked about this verse in, in Luke and then also the last verse of Acts, which is where we'll end up this morning. And um, before, as you turn there, I just want to make a, a comment. I want to read a verse from um, Philippians. Oh, actually, I should just say in advance uh, and preface, um, I'm here with my wife, Eleanor. We've been married 32 years, and we're from this area. Eleanor was born in Bowmanville, went to Knox Christian School uh, way up until grade two, where her family moved then to Woodstock. And uh, I was born in Oshawa, Oshawa General Hospital. My parents lived on Taunton Road by a Sinclair Public School, the, the little one <laughs> that used to be there. And... Um, I went to Emmanuel Christian School for grade eight, or for eight years, and graduated in grade eight, and then uh, Anderson Collegiate High School in uh, 80, 80 to 85, graduated 85, and then I left home and that sort of thing. Um, came back to the area, but I want to read this verse in, um, it's very special for me to be at Calvary for this reason. Philippians 1 verse 3, Paul says to the Philippians, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So Eleanor and I were blessed with the opportunity to serve in Panama for two years, 92 to 94. We came back and for different reasons, couldn't go back to the church we were at. And uh, my cousin, Rick Reinsma, who was new to Calvary at the time, he said, hey, come with us, we go to Calvary. So we came to Calvary and uh, we, we went to the young adult Sunday school class which was uh, taught by Pat and Kathy Sayers and, and Hugh and uh, Donna Swain. And uh, we just, well, I shouldn't say fit in. We were just welcomed by all of those young, young adults who many of them are still good friends of ours. And that became our, the beginning of our experience at Calvary. And then in October uh, 1994, there was a mission conference. And uh, Neil Rempel, who was chair of the missions committee, wrapped up the conference and he said, if there's anyone here who's thinking about missions, we want to know. you got to come talk to us. So Eleanor and I went to talk to him and said, well, we're new here, but we actually are thinking about missions. And that began the process of us becoming members at Calvary. And we served with Ethnos, New Tribes Mission, which is now Ethnos, for 19 years. And Calvary was our sending church, our home church for all those years. And we were so blessed. And uh, the first year we sat under the teaching of Alan Crawford. And then, uh, and then of course, Rick Baker came. Um, we, had a, we had an important decision to make in terms of our life and ministry. Steve Legg was chair of the missions committee, and he was so good to, to 
advocate for us and to, and to, and to uh, talk with us and help us sort it out. And eventually he said, you have a decision to make. We want you to make the decision and the church, church will support you in what you think the Lord wants you to do. And that was so, it's such a blessing. And it set us free, uh, sort of. It's kind of nice sometimes to have someone else make a decision for you. But it set us free to trust the Lord and the Calvary supported us all along until just a few years ago when we have membership in, in Cambridge, Temple Baptist Church. I want to say greetings to you from John and Lori Stairs. John's the lead pastor there. And good things are happening there. And we were chatting the other day and he wanted to say hi. So there it is. Okay, so good to be with you this morning. Luke chapter 9. Of course, Jesus is uh, new, is uh, arrived on the scene and he's, he's teaching and preaching and the disciples are with him and they're seeing what he's doing, they're hearing what he's saying and they're, they're becoming captivated by him. And we pick up the story in, in chapter 9. Jesus called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And then he said to them some more instructions. And Luke says in verse 6, So they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And this, I'm reading from the ESV, by the way. They departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So here's a question for you. What is the gospel? What's the gospel? Uh, many of you would know it, you know, and... Uh, when we talk about the gospel, we talk about the fact that, well, the first of all, the situation is we're sinners separated from God, and, uh, but Christ came to die on the cross for our sins. He paid the price for our sins on Calvary's cross, died, was buried, but then was also resurrected to new life. So the gospel is that if we repent of our sins and admit it and put our trust in Christ who died for us, not only are our sins forgiven, but we're given new life and we enter into a new a new relationship with God. That's the gospel. Except in, John, in Luke 9, Jesus hadn't died yet. But they still went out and preached the gospel. So what were they, what were they talking about? What, what's the story that they were telling? Well, in Luke 9, verse 2, it says, Jesus sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. So there's something about the gospel and the kingdom of God that connects them and surely the cross is part of the story, but it hasn't happened yet. <clears throat> one thing that's really nice, one thing that makes a house really beautiful are the details, the trim, all of the accessories. But a house can't really be a nice house if it doesn't have a strong foundation and a solid framework. And so rather than digging into the details of this passage, what I want to do this morning is lay out the foundations and lay out a framework for understanding the Old and New Testament so that as we read the Bible, we have this framework in mind and see how the pieces fit in. And it's a little, little bit difficult, I admit, to preach to a, a congregation where there are people who have been reading the Bible for 50 years and really know it, and some people are brand new, and they hardly know anything about the Bible. And if that's you, I'm just so glad that you're here. And what I want to do this morning is, create, is talk through this framework while that will encourage many of you. But for those of you who are new, you might not catch all that I'm saying, but I hope what you go away with is the sense that the Bible is one great, awesome story. And if you can get a sense of the framework, you can read the Bible and see how the pieces fit together. And so I hope you'll be encouraged then to become a real student of the Word. So what we're going to do this morning 
talking about talking it up, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. We're going to talk a little bit about what the kingdom is, what makes it good news, and then close with a couple comments about how to proclaim it. So let's just start at the beginning, which of course is Genesis. Uh, you don't have to turn to these passages that I'll be pretty quick in. But simply, we talk about the word kingdom. Usually when we think of the king, of kingdom, we think of an area, a region, or a domain, which is true and appropriate. But biblically speaking, at the heart of the word is the idea of authority, the right to rule. The king has authority. The king has the right to rule. Or it can refer to simply the, the rule of the king. And uh, another way to think of the word kingdom is kingship. The kingdom of God, the kingship of God. God has the right to rule. He has the authority to rule. So David was king, and he had a whole bunch of sons, and they, most of them wanted to be king, and there was some fighting, there was some killing, even. And uh, we read in um, 1 Kings 2, verse 12, Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. So what does it mean that Solomon's kingdom was firmly established? Simply that among all the brothers, he was the one who has the authority and the right to rule. He sits on the throne, no more questions, this is the king, his kingdom is established. And this idea of kingdom is found right in the beginning of scripture, Genesis chapter 1, God creates the heavens and the earth, he creates the universe, he creates the earth, then he creates Adam and Eve and he places them in the garden and we read this in Genesis 1 verse 28, <clears throat> God blessed them, Adam and Eve. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So there itself, right there, is, is the first sense of God's purpose. God's purpose is to bring glory to himself, and he'll do so by filling the earth with people who live in relationship with him. So God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and subdue it and have dominion over it. Subdue it has to do with um, making something of it. Um, take control of it. Take charge. Um, in chapter 2, we read about God says to Adam, um, guard and keep. Guard and keep the garden. So there's minerals in the earth. Discover them. Make things. Develop, develop culture. And have dominion, which means uh, exercise authority over the earth and over the, over the world. But not an abusive authority, but a gentle authority, a careful authority taking care of creation. So hey, God is sovereign, but he gives authority to Adam and Eve, to mankind, to have authority and care for the earth. <clears throat> now, I want to interject and make a couple comments about the character of God, because the character of God becomes characters of his characteristics of his kingdom. And there are a lot of characteristics of God that we can talk about, but I just want to mention four. Righteousness, shalom, love, and truth. Righteousness has to do with things that things are done right, that, they're, that things are done appropriately. But it also actually refers to truth. When something is right, factually, it is true because God is a God of truth. The word shalom is a great Hebrew word that encompasses ideas of not just peace, like absence of conflict, but harmony and rest and contentment and unity and, um, and wholeness. It's a beautiful Hebrew word. And of course, in the Psalms, so often God promises about, he speaks of his steadfast love and the, and the worshipers of God praise him for his steadfast love. <clears throat> so these are characteristics of God. They become characteristics of the kingdom. 
So God creates Adam and Eve and places them in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was not a little plot of land. It was actually a vast expanse of land. It was a territory. The Bible speaks about the Garden of Eden as having rivers that flow through it. And there's good gold in that region. So the Garden of Eden is this vast expanse. God places two trees in the middle, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of, the knowledge, the tree of life. And then God says to Adam and Eve, explore, have at it. This whole garden is for you. You may eat of every tree of the garden. Every tree of the garden is yours for the eating, except this one, except the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which means actually the tree of life was accessible to them. But the tree of knowledge of good and evil was forbidden. <clears throat> so Eve is enjoying the garden and she's exploring and Satan comes up to her and says, did God really say? Did God really say? He doubts God's word. Does God really have your best interest in mind? Is he really as truthful as you think? Is he loving as you think? Do you know that if you eat of the tree, you will become like God? And so he plants seeds of doubt in Eve's mind. And when Eve and Adam take the fruit, they actually eat of the fruit, they reject by taking the fruit and eating it. They're rejecting God's authority over them and his right to rule. And they are asserting their own authority. And they're going to decide what is right and what is wrong. And they're going to take the authority for deciding what is right and how to live. And so they eat of the fruit. And what they discover is actually they have not found freedom. They've not found freedom at all because Satan's a liar and he's a deceiver. And they've discovered that they no longer have the freedom to enjoy the creation of the Garden of Eden. They've been deceived. And um, what happens is that they are punished. They're banished out of the garden and they're sent into, into the world, into Satan's domain, actually. Now, we like to think who's king of the world. God is king of the world. And that's true God is ultimately sovereign, but in a very real sense, this is Satan's domain. This is Satan's world. Adam and Eve give it, gave him authority. They, were, they said, we're not going to go God's way. We're going to go Satan's way. And so Satan has become, in a real sense, king of this world. So in, chapter, in Luke, Jesus is casting out demons, and some people are saying, you're casting out demons in the name of Beelzebub, in the name of the devil. And Jesus said, what? A kingdom divided itself can't stand. So he's talking about the demons and he's using kingdom language. And then he says, but if I'm casting out demons in the, in the power of the spirit, then the kingdom of God has come. So it's interesting when he's talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan, you know, being uh, at odds with itself. No, he said, this is the kingdom of God coming against the kingdom of Satan. And in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul refers, refers to Satan as the God of this age who is blinded unbelievers. So God is sovereign, but Satan is king of the world in a real sense. So Adam and Eve are punished. They're banished, sent out of the garden. That takes us to Genesis chapter 4. They have some, they have descendants. Cain and Abel are two of them. And um, Cain kills Abel. And, uh, and that's, a, that's obviously it's a, it's a bad scene. We, want, we can learn some lessons from this. And one is that Cain and Abel are not born in the garden. They're not born with access to the tree of life. They don't get to start over with a clean slate. They're actually born with their parents out of the garden, separated from the life of God, separated from the tree of life, and, and sinners. 
And this is why hatred boils up in Cain's heart and he kills his brother. They're not living the life of the garden. They're living, the, they're living in death. They're trapped in sin, living Satan's way, the way of death. So what I want to do this morning, we talked, we've given you four characteristics of the kingdom of God. I want to give you five principles that are uh, crucial to this framework that we want to develop. The first one is this. The triune God is at work in global affairs and in individual lives. The triune God is at work in global affairs all the time, but also in individual lives. He's involved in your life. And there's so much conflict going on in the world, but God knows you, sees you, loves you, and is at work in your life. Second principle is this. Satan hates God. So Satan fights against God, and he deceives people. Satan fights against God, and he deceives people. And then the third principle is this about humanity. Sin has saturated all of creation. That's why there's tornadoes and earthquakes and, and hurricanes. There's a sin has saturated all of creation, including the human, human soul. And we see that in Cain. So what does the word kingdom mean? The authority and the right to rule of a king. God is king of kings, but Satan rules. And that's bad news. But we have to talk about the bad news to understand what is the good news that we are called to proclaim. So we talk about what is the gospel. The gospel is a Greek word that simply means good news. It's good news. So there's something to, to announce. The good news is something to announce. So what's the good news in these opening chapters of Genesis? Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden, but when God punishes Adam and Eve, he also says that there will be a seed of the woman who will come. And he will cr the serpent will crush the, uh, the, the heel of the seed, but the seed will crush the head of the serpent. There's going to be death there, but the seed will crush the head of the serpent. Um, so that's the, first, that's the first whisper of the gospel, that God, someday someone will come and set all things right. All things right again. And what's interesting is God did not kick Adam and Eve out of the garden and slam the door. God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden and the, mer the mercy of it all is that he follows them out of the garden and closes the door and the rest of the Bible, the rest of human history is the story of God at work in the world calling people back to himself because he wants to usher us back in to a glorious Eden, a glorious new heaven and new earth, which is how the book ends. But the human heart has become so thoroughly saturated with evil and wickedness, Genesis 6, 5, that after 2,000 years of wickedness, 2,000 years of God's patience, he destroys the world with a flood. He sends a flood to judge sin. He just wipes out the world. Well, he doesn't wipe it out. He, he, he's wiping it clean, actually, because he's going to start over. He's going to start over. And he punishes sin, but he saves Noah and his family, the seed of Eve, because he's still on mission, on purpose. And Noah and his family come out of the ark, and one of the things God says to them is, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, because God is still on mission to fill the earth with people who live. God is on mission to bring glory to himself by filling the earth with people who live in relationship with him. So what do the descendants of Noah do? 
Do they scatter around the world? No, they gather together in one place and they build the Tower of Babel because they want to make a name, not to honor God, but to make a name for themselves. But God's going to have none of that, so he comes down and he punishes them, he judges them. He actually takes this one language group, he somehow creates multiple languages. People are, wake up one morning and find that they're speaking different languages. They find people who, are, who they can understand and they, they can't get along, so they all separate into these individual people groups, language groups that start spreading out into the world. <clears throat> this takes us to Abraham, which is... Genesis chapter 12, we read in Genesis chapter 12 that God calls Abraham, he's, a, he's an idol worshiper in Ur of Chaldees, and God calls him and he says to Abraham, I want to take you out of where you are because I'm going to bring you into a better situation. And God covenants with Abraham, and um, in the covenant we read some pretty, um, God makes some, where am I, where's my notes here? Oh yeah, so God promises, he covenants to Noah, Adam, Abraham, some important things. He promises him land, that's actually chapter 15, verse 7. He promises Abraham descendants, that he's going to be a, there's going to be a great nation. He's going to give Abraham a great name. It's interesting, you can't make it, make, if you, don't try to make a good name for yourself. If you're going to have a great name, God's, God's the name maker. So he's going to make Abraham's name great, and he's going to bless Abraham, in fact, twice it says, God, God says, I will bless you. But then he says, all the families in the earth will be blessed through you. And so God blesses Abraham, not so that he can have a great life, but because he wants Abraham to be a blessing to other people. Blessed to be a blessing. Are you blessed? Like, are we blessed in Canada? Like, you do not, maybe you don't think of yourself as wealthy, but globally speaking, like, we are fabulously wealthy, but we are blessed to be a blessing, blessing, not just with our, our, our finances, but also with our health, right? We, have to be, we are blessed with the gospel. We're blessed with the Bible and our language, and, but it's so that we can be a blessing to other people and help other people have the Bible in their language. So Abraham and his descendants become the line of the seed. And then after centuries of slavery in Egypt, after the oppressive rule of a godless king, God calls his people out of that situation because he wants to bring them into the promised land where they can live as his people. But it doesn't go so well. And after some tumultuous centuries with the judges, this, this cycle of, of rebellion and repentance, but it's actually more of a spiral because the book of Judges ends in strange ways. It's interesting that Judges ends with the comment that, that there's no king in Israel in those days. So this takes us to Samuel, the prophet Samuel, who anoints David as king. So God calls David out of the pasture, out of the pasture into royalty, and God covenants with David, and he makes promises to David, and he promises David, now some of this will sound familiar, he promises David a great name, he promises David land, that the people of Israel will live in the land, that they will have rest from their enemies, which is shalom. And that God will continue to have his steadfast love on David and his family. And that David and his descendants, or the descendants of David, will be kings. They will rule over an eternal kingdom. What an amazing set of promises for David. 
So it went well for a couple decades. David is king, glorious king, Solomon in all of his splendor. But then that didn't go well because he got into idolatry. Then his son, and then the nation of Israel split into two. Remember the characteristic of God and his kingdom is shalom and harmony. Now God's people have split into two nations. They're divided. They're generally, over the centuries, characterized by unrighteousness and injustice, conflict, not shalom, persistent idolatry, and hatred of God's promise, prophets, hatred of God's word. So God takes them out of the promised land and he sends them away into exile so they can live under the oppressive rule of an ungodly king. But God's still not done with them and he promises some salvation. And this takes us to what's called the new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 23, chapter 30, 31, Ezekiel 34 to 37. Study those chapters and make cross references and so on. It's fascinating. God promises, despite their persistent disobedience and rebellion, God promises a covenant of peace. A kingdom at peace. That they, the people will live as one nation in their land under one king. And the king is a Davidic king. God actually says, your king, I will set above you, your shepherd, um, my prince, David. He's going to give them a new heart and a new spirit so that they're, they're not idolatrous, but that they're actually worshiping God. And so that generation and generation will live as God's people in security in the land, worshiping him. And he says, the, the people will be fruitful and multiply. Interesting. So, this is how the Old Testament ends. This is how the Old Testament ends with this great hope, this great expectation that someday the seed of the woman will come, will be this great warrior shepherd king in the line of David. And they're expecting that and they're hoping that. But then we've got a couple of blank pages between the Bible, which is actually 400 years of tumultuous history. And then the New Testament begins with Matthew chapter 1, which... Um, that's a genealogy, actually. How boring is that? Let's read that in Sunday school. Oh, my goodness. Except that that's one of the most important missional passages in, in the whole Bible. Matthew chapter 1, the first verse of the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then we have this list of names. And then in verse 17, we read, So all of the generations from Abraham from Abraham were 14 generations, from Abraham to David, 14 generations, from David to the exile, think New Covenant, 14 generations, and from the exile to Christ, 14 generations. What Matthew is saying, he's not saying you've got to learn your history before you can get to the fun stuff. He's saying that what God has been doing all along in the Old Testament in the expectation, this is where it all comes to fulfillment. Jesus is not the beginning of a new, he doesn't start a new religion. He's fulfilling the Old Testament. The story that Matthew is about to tell about Jesus is the fulfillment of the story so far. Uh, okay. Um, oh yeah, so the suspension bridge. Look at this graphic. Here we have this, this from the first few chapters, in the early chapters of Genesis, 1 through 11, there's this like ancient history and then in chapter 12, it slows down and we get the story of, of where the whole story of slows down. Abraham 
God's covenant with Abraham, God's covenant with David, God's new covenant. And then what Matthew's saying is, okay, now this, now we're getting off here. This is where the story of Jesus um, really starts. It's the story of the Messiah who has come. The Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts is a two-volume history book. The book of Luke is Luke's history of the life of Christ. The book of Acts is Luke's history of the early disciples. And at the beginning of the book of Luke, we read about John the Baptist. Oh, actually, the books of Luke and Acts are written to Theophilus, who's Greek. Because it's interesting, the story of the Jewish Messiah is actually not a Jewish story after all. It's a story for the whole world. It's a story for the whole world. And in the beginning, we read about John the Baptist and Jesus, and they're both preaching the same message. The kingdom of God is near. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And that takes us, how's that for a long intro to get to Luke chapter 9? But again, it's the foundation, right? It's a structure. And then we can understand when Jesus says, go out and preach the kingdom, and Luke says, they went out and preached the gospel, it really is the good news of the kingdom. Well, what is the kingdom? It's the right to rule of God. And this is Satan's domain. But what God is saying is the king has come. That's the good news of the kingdom. The king that we've been waiting for, the seed of the woman from Genesis 3, he's the one who's going to set all things right. He's actually come. He's actually here. And the, the, the hope of all of this healthy, good life in the kingdom is going to start happening. And the proof of it is Jesus is healing and the apostles are healing. And the healing testifies to what they're saying as being true. So the excitement and the anticipation is growing for Jesus, but, the, but then he's executed. He's arrested and killed. And that doesn't make any sense to anybody. Because the, the Messiah is going to be this great warrior king who's going to defeat all the enemies and usher in a glorious age. And he's crucified and the disciples have given up everything to follow him. Now he's dead. Now the disciples are hiding because they're worried that the, 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 the authorities are going to come for them. So they're worse than devastated. And then the resurrection happens and they're even more confused because what in the world is going on? They didn't expect Jesus to die. They certainly didn't expect him to rise from the dead. They certainly did not understand the fullness of what God is doing in the world. So, Luke 24. If you have your Bible, turn to Luke 24. This is the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke. The last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 26 Two disciples are, have left Jerusalem. They're going to the town of Emmaus. Jesus joins them and he says this, Luke 24, 26. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. So we only covered three of the five principles. And here's the fourth principle. That all of God's prophecies, all of God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. And this is what the point that Jesus is making to these disciples on the road to Emmaus. The whole Old Testament, it all actually points and speaks to me. The Messiah that you've been looking for is me. Later that same day, he's in the upper room 
um, with the 12 and a greater group. And we read in verse uh, 46, Jesus says to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. That wasn't necessarily part of the disciples' ideas when they were thinking about the kingdom. But it's true. The Old Testament points to Jesus and it leads us to forgiveness of sins. So I want to comment here on the gospel. Because after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, the gospel now becomes bigger than the disciples ever imagined. The good news is that God has not forgotten his promises. He has sent the seed who will set all things right, and it's Jesus of Nazareth. When Jesus died on the cross, he died to pay for the sins of the world. And in the book of Acts, we read the call for people to repent and believe. To repent means to turn away. So here we are in the kingdom of darkness, slaves to sin, slaves to God, living life, sort of enjoying it, perhaps not enjoying it, but God calls us to recognize the evilness of our own hearts and, um, and repent of it and to recognize sin and to turn away from sin in disgust and remorse and say, I don't want to live that way any longer. I'm not able to rescue myself. So we repent, we turn away from sin and we turn to the only one who can rescue us, which is Jesus. He died on the cross. He suffered the full effects of sin. Um, so if we repent of our sins and acknowledge our sinfulness and trust in Christ, our sins can be forgiven. Christ deals with our sin, our sinful activity. It can be forgiven. But when we, are, when we trust in Christ and we receive new life, Christ deals not just with our sinful activity, but with our sinfulness, our identity as sinners. Now we have a new identity. We are no longer sinners. We are children of God in the family of God. And this is why Jesus says to Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, one must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because when we are born physically, we're born outside the garden, slaves to sin, separated from the tree of life. We have to be born again into a new situation, into a family of God um, with new life. And Christ does that. He does that through the work of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Papers out of order, page seven, page, okay, here we are. <clears throat> so that's the good news. The good news is not just about nation of Israel living in the promised land, living well, but it's, it's, a, it's an invitation to the whole world to live well, to be rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of life and light. And as believers, what does God want us to do but be fruitful and multiply? Jesus tells the story, the parable of the good soil. And some of the soil is bad, but the seed that took root in the good soil became fruitful and it multiplied. We ought to proclaim the news. So the word proclaim, to preach, is simply to announce. We, we don't have to and we can't convince people to be saved we are just called to announce the good news that the Savior has come. The good news that Jesus uh, conquered Satan, sin, and death. What's interesting in the book of Acts, because now you're studying the book of Acts, um, the message was Jesus is Lord. 
And the message, the, the call, the claim that Jesus is Lord was a great offense to the claim that Caesar is Lord. And in that context, Lord is king, because Caesar was king, right? He was emperor. No, Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's offensive. That's upsetting. What about our culture? If we claim that Jesus is Lord, what's the offense? The offense is to those who say, I am Lord. I'm actually the authority in my life. I get to decide everything about myself. I get to decide who I am. I get to decide what is right for me. I get to pick the truth that is true for me. I even get to decide when I die and I can choose the circumstances. I am Lord. No, you're not Lord. Praise the Lord. The Lord is Lord because he's sovereign and he knows what's best and what's right and good. But the gospel is offensive, right? So how do we proclaim the gospel? We we talk it up, we preach it, we proclaim it, we announce it, but then we also live it. So as we have new life, ought we not to, char- to reflect the characteristics of God? Righteousness, shalom in our own lives and in our relationships. We ought to be people who love and who speak the truth. Okay, a couple comments about the book of Acts. It's very interesting. Um, Acts chapter 1 Jesus, Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus is, is proclaiming the kingdom to the Jews in Judea, Acts chapter 1, uh, after their crucifixion. Um, he tells them to wait for the power. I'm, I'm, I'm pressured for time now. So let's do the book of Acts in a minute, right? Um, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is given. And the disciples are to not go into the world except without the power of the Holy Spirit. And this actually is our fifth principle. The fifth principle is this, that God does a work in and through the believer through the work of the Holy Spirit, okay? So this set of five principles, we're going to talk about Monday night and Tuesday night because they are so foundational to understand how do we proclaim the gospel? How do we actually live it out? So the, God, the Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are preaching and what they, what they announce is that all of God's prophecies All of his promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's the good news that they're announcing. So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom to the Jews in Judea. In Acts chapter 28, verse 31, the last verse of the book of Acts, Paul is in Rome, which is the capital of the empire, and he's proclaiming the kingdom of God um, to all. So it says in Acts 28, verse 31, he was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness. Um, so I want to encourage you to come. I want to encourage you to come on uh, Monday night. We're going to talk about the implications of the kingdom theology for us as individual lives. How does that, how does that change my life as a believer? How does it change the way I live in this world? How does it change our fellowship as a local church? Shalom, harmony, love, faith, righteousness. Interesting. And then on Tuesday, we're going to talk about what's the implications of this kingdom message to the world. Like, how can this actually change the world? But for closure, let's, can we put that last slide up, guys, with the, uh, with the bridge? It's interesting. God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden into the world and God spends the rest of human history in the world trying to call people back to himself to rescue them to bring them back in the Garden of Eden 
in those first few chapters of, of Genesis, 1 through 11, um, we have this sort of prehistory. And then God calls Abram out of the nations and he covenants with Abram and he covenants with Dave and we have the new covenant and then we have Christ and then at the end of Matthew and Luke and the beginning of Acts, God sends his people now back into the nations with the message of Christ. God rescues us from the kingdom of darkness, brings us into the kingdom of light. Now we can live with the light, live in the light. But God sends us back into the darkness with the light to show the light that those are living in darkness can be saved. That's the gospel. What an amazing story. Praise the Lord that we can be part of it. Thank you so much for your patience this morning, and I hope that you're encouraged by that story. If you have any um, uh, comments or questions or um, a desire to be saved and trust in Christ, come talk to me. Come to talk to the pastors at the front, and uh, we'll be happy to talk with you about it. Calvin? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you know that you are a citizen of his kingdom. And we've been learning in the book of Acts that we are commanded to be his witnesses. What an incredible honor and what an incredible privilege. Frank, thank you so much for helping us to see through the history of God's mission where we fit in on that. Uh, my second last class in my master's degree was actually with Frank. And I remember how God used Frank to help me to understand and get excited what I am now the part of God's mission and history is happening now and and you have called us and empowered us to do the same thing that you told the disciples to do go out and proclaim the kingdom of God this isn't just history the mission continues and he's now using us to go and do the same thing if you take a few seconds and think about it I don't know how you can't in awe go whoa God's mission that we studied all this morning and here we are in 2023 and we are now those citizens and those disciples who are go, supposed to go and proclaim. Isn't that exciting? What an incredible privilege. You know, Frank made an important point today. The triune God is working in global events. And if you've been watching the news, praise God for that truth. God is working in global events, but he's also working in individual lives. And so you might be here this morning and you are not a part of the kingdom of God. There's only one of the citizenship you have then, and that's a part of the kingdom of Satan. But yet today, God loves you enough that you heard the good news that through Jesus Christ, you can have your sins forgiven and be reconciled to God. God is working in individual lives today. And if you're here and you're like, wow, I never had any clue that I was separated from God living in the kingdom of darkness, we would love to introduce you to Jesus Christ see your sins forgiven and be reconciled to God and live with new purpose. If that is something you would desire today, come and talk to us after the service. We would love to introduce you to Jesus, our King. But secondly, God is also working in believers' lives, calling them to a new level of service, perhaps. It was 2006 that I was sitting in the back overflow there at a missions Sunday, just like this. Benji Defadasson was our guest speaker. And I had been fighting God on surrendering my life to him and that morning my brow was sweating my tongue and my mouth was dry and my heart was beating and, and when he gave a call to say would you be interested in serving in missions i didn't feel called to overseas missions but i knew that day jesus was saying i'm working in your individual life calvin i want you to surrender stop fighting
And 2006, in that back overflow, I put my hand up knowing what I was committing to God and I said, I'm going to stop fighting. If you're calling me, I'm available. That was Sunday morning. Wednesday of the same week, I had a lunch with the chairman of the board, Scott Martin. And here's the question he said, the pastors have been wondering, would you ever consider full-time vocational ministry? Maybe that's you here this morning. Maybe God is calling you to a new level of service in his kingdom. And you would just like someone to pray with you. Pastor, I'm feeling this. I don't know if it's me or if it's the Lord, but I want to know and I want to make myself available. If that's you this morning, come and pray with us afterward. We would love to help you on that journey. Talk it up. Proclaim the good news of the kingdom. It is good news, amen? So let's make sure we go out and talk it up. The rest of the day, we'll see you back at 6 tonight. Come and listen to what God is doing through our missionaries' lives around the world. 6 o'clock tonight. May God bless you and have a great afternoon.